You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. I'm your host, Dr. Tina Moore. I'm a naturopathic and chiropractic physician, and I'm here to tell you the truth as I know it. With censorship and thought police taking over the platforms and airwaves, my goal is to bring you real talk about all things health, strength, and resiliency. Get ready to have your paradigm rocked. I don't hold back, and I tell it how I see it. This is Human Wellness 2.0 Uncensored. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet and the author of the best-selling book, The Carnivore Code. Dr. Saladino is board certified as a physician nutrition specialist with a focus on integrative medicine and nutritional biochemistry. This interview was so much fun. We talked about what the carnivore diet is and how one can get started in it, how modern hunter-gatherer societies function and eat and hunt, why plants want to kill you, how much animal-based protein one should eat in a day for optimal health, why seed oils are so destructive, and so much more. It was a literal brain dump from Dr. Saladino, and I can't wait for you to listen. As usual, if you have any questions for the show, please email us at podcast at drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A.com. And if you like the show, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'm glad you're here. Let's jump in. Dr. Paul Saladino, I'm so excited to have you here on the Dr. Tina Show. Thank you so much for being here. I know you most notably as the carnivore MD and the author of The Carnivore Code, and I've been a big fan for years, so thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. Well, and you've also got an awesome supplement line, which we should talk about at some point, too, because I'm a fan. Yeah, absolutely. We can definitely do that. Cool. So what I wanted to do on today's show was... I'm, I'm familiar with a carnivore diet. I used to do sort of a modified version when I was back. So I'm a naturopath and a chiropractor, and I did both programs concurrently. And my secret to getting through that, because board exams or and or um, finals weeks would always overlap, which was cuckoo bee. And so my secret was to go on an all-meat, all-fat diet during that week and the week prior, and I would just get in the zone. And it was amazing. So I, I moved in and out of that and sort of used that as my secret tool for a long time. The term carnivore diet hadn't I had not heard it coined yet. This was back in like 2008. Um, and I heard about it first from an older guy at a prolotherapy conference. That's what I specialize in. And I thought, huh, that's that's an interesting concept. And then I stumbled upon you years later. And I wanted to discuss today, sort of pretend like I don't know anything. And the audience listening is hearing this for the first time. How can we best educate them about what the carnivore diet is? And then maybe, you know, just brief, and then maybe bring them into like, how does one begin that journey and sort of phase into that way of, or that lifestyle, if you will, and of course, all the wonderful benefits of it. So are you down for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think all of this is based on this fundamental first principles question of how can the foods we eat affect us in terms of health, vitality, or disease? And I'm sure your audience will be quite familiar with the huge uh, cross-sectional area of the small intestine and the large intestine and this massive amount of absorptive gastrointestinal epithelium to which we expose hundreds of millions of antigens every day in the kilogram quantities of food that we lay out across our guts every day. And so we have the outside world coming in contact with a very thin epithelium on the other side of which the human side of which is the majority of our immune system within a histological layer called the lamina propria. And if you look at that, we basically have 
tons and tons of antigens in the form of protein or any of these other compounds that are in these foods, and those are coming in contact with our immune system. And lo and behold, the immune system reacts to those things very specifically depending on the individual. And so all of these discussions are based upon this idea that some foods are more triggering to some people's immune systems. And then another sublayer in that, which we'll get into today, is the fact that I think that if we look at anthropology and we look at the way that our ancestors and uh, sort of historical humans for the last million, couple millions of years, which we can look at currently living hunter-gatherers as a proxy, they, they do look at foods on a hierarchy. And I think that that hierarchy corresponds to the nutritive qualities of the food, the bioavailable, the bioavailability of the nutrients in the food, the absolute amount of nutrients in the food, and the presence or absence of anti-nutrients in the food, which can make the foods harder or easier to digest. So when we kind of put that in the cauldron and we stir it all up, these concepts of elimination diets come out of it. And there are many types of elimination diets. Um, fasting is perhaps the most extreme example and can be very helpful for people, but obviously we can't fast forever lest we expire and die. And there's no nutrition on a fasting diet, but fasting can be very helpful as a reset when we don't quite understand what's going on. And fasting obviously has no toxins, no anti-nutrients, but it also has no nutrition. And so if we're going to eat food, how do we select the foods that are going to give us the most nutrition, the most nutrients, and the, the array of nutrients is vast. It really goes beyond, it starts with things like vitamins that we're aware of and minerals, uh, zinc, magnesium, manganese, selenium, you know, iron, all these type of things, and moves into vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, and K, people are probably familiar with K2 and K1, the fat-soluble vitamins, the importance of those, and then other vitamins, the B vitamins, and, and then we move into other sorts of nutrients, things like uh, single amino acids like anserine or taurine or carnitine or carnosine, things like choline, and then we move into peptides, and all of these I would consider to be nutrients, peptides being usually less than 50 amino acids. And all of these are nutrients, and so how do we get the most nutrients that our body needs to run its internal biochemistry, and how do we get those in the most absorbable form, and how do we get those, and this is also coupled with absorb, absorption and availability, how do we get the least number of toxins, digestive enzyme inhibitors, and things that are potentially going to damage our gut, and essentially our gut and other things as we're getting those nutrients in. So with all those factors, you can put all them in an equation, and what comes out, like I said, are a series of elimination diets. Along the spectrum is something like paleo, might be one type of elimination diet or one type of eating. And paleolithic diets start to look at anthropology and they say, okay, our ancestors didn't do a lot of dairy, which I think is probably true. Animal husbandry is a fairly new invention. So the majority of people may have some immunologic intolerance to milk proteins like casein and whey. Reasonable. Some people can tolerate, but a lot of people can't. And then our ancestors really didn't eat a whole lot of grains or legumes. If anyone has ever tried to eat a, a raw, fresh legume, a bean, you realize it's toxic and you'll be puking. And there are many, many recorded incidents in you know, recent human history of people having mass poisonings of undercooked kidney beans for this exact reason. Like, beans are frankly toxic when they're raw. They must be very strongly detoxified either by intense cooking, soaking, sprouting, and pressure cooking or other fermentation methods to really be you know, rendered edible by humans. So let's leave those out. And let's leave out grains, because those are a pretty recent thing for humans as well. People are familiar with gluten, which is a lectin, a carbohydrate-binding protein that many people have sensitivities to. And I think Alessio Fasano has done a great amount of work suggesting that at the level of the gut epithelium, no matter who you are, it looks like 
gluten is going to trigger some degree of zonulin release mm -hmm. and what we call colloquially leaky gut. So probably not a good thing for anyone. So I think most people can kind of understand like grains and beans and dairy might not be great for people. So that's the first equation. That's the first way you solve the equation. But unfortunately for a lot of people, that's not enough. And um, things left in the diet can also cause problems and cause people to either have immunologic issues or GI issues or you know, autoimmune issues, et cetera. So then you start solving the equation again. Like let's solve the equation with a little bit more stringency and look a little bit more uh, intentionally at plant toxins. And then you get to like autoimmune paleo, which leaves out seeds and nuts. Because in fact, seeds and nuts are all seeds along with, seed, with grains and legumes. Those are all seeds. We call them different things, but if you plant them in the ground, they grow a plant. And if you think like a plant, a seed is very vulnerable and a seed takes a lot of energy for a plant to make in many cases and a seed must germinate or should germinate into another plant, they don't always, but a seed is a plant baby and it's vulnerable so they're going to defend it. Seeds are very, uh, they're full of digestive enzyme inhibitors and things that cause issues. There are lots of lectins, these carbohydrate binding proteins in seeds, nuts, grains and legumes, all of which are seeds that cause people issues. So then we, those are all the true seeds. So that makes sense from an autoimmune paleo perspective. And then you say, all right, well, you know, in the nightshade class of vegetables and fruits, Solanaceae, that one is only recently hybridized so that it's not completely toxic for humans. Things like potato, white potatoes. I mean, these were frankly toxic, containing many uh, alkaloids like solanine and choconine uh, just a few hundred or thousand years ago. So we've only recently made this whole family of plants edible by humans, and many people still respond immunologically to nightshades. So that's the second way you can solve the equation. And then you can take it one step further, which is a, a sweet spot for me, what I think is a sweet spot, which is what I would consider to be animal-based. And this is where things really get interesting, because once you move from autoimmune paleo to animal-based, you start to say, all right, we've, we've accepted that seeds of plants, which are seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes, are pretty highly defended. There's really no unique nutrients in there that we can't get other places. Let's leave those out. We're gonna leave dairy out, but let's keep thinking like a plant and ask the question, a plant doesn't want its seeds to get eaten, but it also doesn't want its leaves to get eaten, and it doesn't want its stems to get eaten. And so why are we eating spinach? And why are we eating kale? And why are we eating broccoli? And why are we eating cabbage? Or if we're going to eat those foods, how do we have to go about detoxifying them? Should we be fermenting the heck out of all those foods? And my answer to that, in short, is yes. So just like a plant doesn't want its seeds to get eaten, it doesn't want its leaves to get eaten. And a lot of times, plants don't want their roots to get eaten either. We see that with white potatoes and you know things like um, yucca or cassava, which is frankly toxic unless you grind it up, ferment it, and air dry it because it has this hydrocyanic acid in it, which is contains cyanide, not a good thing for humans. I have yucca growing in my front yard, and I don't eat it, but the guys around here will eat it if I tell them to cut it down. And in order to do that, they have to take it through a lot of processing to make it edible. It's clearly defended to some extent. So we're starting to say, all right, we're thinking like a plant, and we're moving down that equation of how do we solve for the most amount of nutrients and the least amount of toxins. Now, so far I've just talked about the things that you're leaving out, but I think that if we leave out the toxins in plant leaves, plant stems, most plant roots, definitely plant seeds, what are you left with from plants? You're left with fruit. And so I think of fruit as like, well, fruit is like the casing on the seed. Most of the time plants want you to eat that. And if you look at botanical science, it's, it doesn't, it's not that often that plants are actually 
putting toxins in the fruit. Some fruit is toxic to some species, but generally fruit is edible and acquired and sought out by birds and other animals. Bears eat berries, right? Humans know that if you've ever been hiking in the Pacific Northwest in the fall, there's like berries that are very brightly colored and you're gonna eat salmon berries and raspberries and blueberries and your, your, your eyes just go to them. You know, we clearly see fruit in the wild as different colors and we're attracted to it. And I've done the same thing. And so those are probably less toxic. And a lot of times the fruit will contain the seeds, but the plant is clearly saying, eat the fruit, don't eat the seeds. If you swallow the seeds, please poop them out somewhere, like apple seeds, right? Apple seeds have cyanogenic glycosides in them, another toxin. You're not supposed to eat the apple seeds. It's very clear, um, and on and on. And then if you look at stone fruit seeds, things like peaches or nectarines or apricots or cherries, those all have toxins in the seed as well. And it, the fruit is encased in that very hard, or the, the seed is encased in that very hard shell. The plant is clearly defending the, the seed, defending the baby in a shell, and it makes the seed toxic. So don't eat this, but you can eat the fruit around it. So then we've, we've journeyed all the way down. So from plants, we've really got fruit left in terms of the least toxic parts of plants. And the flip side of the equation is, where do we get all the nutrients? Because you and I both know what happens when people just become fruitarians. They, they don't do very good. Um, they, they eventually have massive protein and nutrient deficiencies. So we've, we've created a, a section of plant food that has the least amount of toxins as we've moved down that equation and continually solved it with more and more stringency. But the flip side of the equation has been present throughout, and it's something that's borne out in anthropology and evolution over and over, which is that the majority of our nutrients should come from animal foods. And animal foods are the most, they're the most sought after foods by humans in all of history. And how do we know this? We know mass animal graves, we can talk to people, we can look at historical records, and we can actually go visit living hunter-gatherers. There's only a few thousand of them left on the planet, but you can go to Tanzania, you can go to Botswana, Namibia, and work with the Ikung, the Kungsan, or you can go visit the Hadza. Um, and I got to visit the Hadza in January, I spent a few weeks with them, and you can ask them, and I did this, I sat with them and I asked them, what is your favorite food? Meat. What do you dream about? Meat. What makes a good <laughs> husband? A man who's a good hunter and brings home meat to the tribe. Uh, you know, what's the best day of your life? The day that I hunt and kill the biggest animal and bring it back to the tribe and we all sing and dance and our bellies are full for days. Okay, clearly we understand that this, this pretty darn... Um, accurate, preserved, hunter-gatherer culture, everything revolves around meat. Their whole life revolves around meat. Their life doesn't revolve around pumpkin leaves or tubers. Uh, you know, occasionally they'll eat pumpkin leaves if they're like, starving, and occasionally they will dig tubers, but they don't say like, oh, I really wish I could go dig some tubers today. I got the juiciest tuber, right? They'll take it or leave it, and I've had the tubers there, and they're very fibrous, and they spit most of the fiber out from the tuber. It's not even really that enjoyable. It's like survival food as opposed to, hey, this is freaking good. And the second food that they like is honey. So if, if they had access to meat and honey all the time, they would probably just eat meat and honey and occasionally a baobab fruit or some berries that they find on the side of the road. That's, that's what they really, really like. There was one time that I was in the car with the Hadzuk because we were moving them to, we were helping give three members of the tribe a ride. Otherwise, it would have taken them all day to, to walk to the place we were going. And we were gathering this, um, this paste from this plant called an elephant foot to make poison for the arrows. And as we're driving in the car, they don't usually do this, but with us, they were like, well, if you give us a ride there, you know, it'll take us a day to walk there, or you can just give us a ride there in an hour, and we'll, we'll show you how to make this poison for the arrows. On the way, they see the berries they like out the window on the side of the road, and they, they start signaling to the driver, like, we got to stop there on the way back. So they don't, they don't like, see any plant leaves on the side of the road and go, we got to stop there on the way back. They see berries, right? They see fruit. 
And if they'd seen a big hive of bees, they would have been like, we're stopping there on the way back and stealing all their honey. You know? Or if they see an animal, they're going to run out of the car and hunt it. We get to the place where we're gathering this elephant foot and you know, pay, smashing it into a pulp. I have videos of this on my Instagram. And all the while, they're like, don't cut yourself. And definitely don't you know, wash your hands before you eat anything or you'll get very sick from this shit. I'm like, wow. okay, great, right? Don't cut yourself because you could, this is really bad. And they get, we get straight out of the car and there's, there's flamingos and they just pull out, they, they bring their bows over They're like hunting the flamingos <laughs> as we're trying to make the poison and they didn't get any, but they're trying. And so clearly they're like, they, they want to eat meat, right? So they're, they're focused on berries and, and a previous day I'd been out with them hunting and we hunted, um, baboons, which is not something that many people are used to seeing hunted, but this is life and death for them. So we were hunting a baboon, and along the way we'd find honey, and everything would stop, and they would go, uh, they would go all, they would just eat all the honey, and it was, they loved it. So it's clear there's a hierarchy. And when we would eat the baboon, we would eat all the baboon, all of the organs, everything. And, you know, we ate the brain, we ate ears, they eat every piece of the baboon, the tongue, every piece of the baboon. And so... If we look at these cultures, it's very clear that meat, organs, eating animals from nose to tail has been at the center of their existence forever. This is what makes them sort of animated. This is what gives them life. And we know this nutritionally now. All of these unique nutrients that are found in animal foods that really give them vitality. So they're searching for meat. And then when, they're, when they've run out of meat or they don't have meat, they're going to search for berries and honey. And then maybe tubers last. And then dead last is going to be things like pumpkin leaves or baobab seeds. So this is just the Hadza, but we see this pattern over and over with other cultures. You can look at the Kaiwi Menno in the Amazon, and they do the same thing. There's not a lot of them that are hunter-gatherers, but some of them are, and they basically eat meat and fruit. Makes sense to me, and by meat, I mean meat and organs. And so this idea of a carnivore or animal-based diet is really sort of based around this, this thinking of what is the most... What, are the, what is the way to solve this equation? How do we get the most nutrients with the least toxins? And then at the very end of the equation is the carnivore diet, which is all animal foods and no plant foods at all, no fruit, nothing else, which um, is, is sort of was the genesis of all of this for me. That's what I wrote a book about and started thinking about it. And that was what I started with. What I found along the way was that pure carnivore didn't work for me long-term. We can talk about concerns I have with long-term ketosis. And so I kind of came back to this animal-based concept and now I eat meat, organs, our desiccated organ supplements from hardened soil, uh, honey and fruit, and it's like the best of everything, right? I'm getting the least toxic plant foods. I am getting carbohydrates, which serve a valuable role in human, human physiology day to day. And I'm also getting all of the nutrients in meat and organs with very few, or essentially no plant toxins like you'd find in roots, stems, leaves, and seeds. So that was a very long-winded explanation, but hopefully that's a good... Um, that was awesome. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good framework from which we can go down any rabbit hole you want. I love it. That was awesome. So I'm a big Weston Price fan I, from way back and... Um, Big fan of standard process supplements, so I always called them beastie bits. So I've been using glandulars for years and years and years, decades. Um, so I'm a big fan of that idea, but I would use all of that supplementally, and then I would eat. Well, for me, I have a lot of gut issues. I've always had a lot of gut issues, and so I will eat sparingly. And intermittently, I will get an appetite that's robust, and when I eat whatever I want, well, I shouldn't say that, I I'm still pretty darn careful, but the just the amount of like bloating and distension and discomfort that comes from ingesting what you know seemingly what should be 
easy and okay for others to eat, like a salad, <laughs> for instance, just does me right. in, right. right? And so my mom, this past year and a half ago, we finally got her diet. She was having all kinds of health issues. Turns out it was Crohn's. So she's been having to be very strict. And she mentioned at one point, she's like, oh yeah, salads destroy me. And I thought, huh. So I took salads out. And then I told you, you and I had a call the other day. I went out, my fiance grew this gorgeous, huge garden. We live out on 40 acres. I live in Oregon. So like we have so many blackberry bushes just literally right on our property, acres of blackberry bushes. And I'm very excited because they're all, they're all ripe right now. But he grew all this beautiful arugula and lettuce for me. And I ripped it out of the ground. I, I, I should, I should back up. I like you know, gave it a buzz cut with my hands so that it would regrow. And I was holding these huge bushels of arugula and my hands were burning, like my hands, my wrists, all the way up just, and I'm, I'm a rashy girl. Like I react to things quickly. And I was like, geez, oh, Pete's, what's going on here? And then I remember that week I had, I think I heard you talking to Dave Asprey and you're like, plants want to kill you. <laughs> I thought, um, I looked at my fans. I'm like, oh my God, these plants want to kill me. This, I was, the next stop was the gullet, right? Like down into that, down into that nice mucosal region. That's not even, I probably don't even have a good thick mucosa on there anymore. So to protect me, no, no nice goo layer. It's just right up against that galt and that immune system. And I thought, it, I just had this epiphany. I'm like, I got to talk to Paul. <laughs> that's it. We got to get Paul on the show and talk this through because let's, let's, Let's unpack that a little bit. People get so offended whenever I reiterate your words about you know plants wanting to kill you. What does that mean? Well, just think about it, right? Think about it from the perspective of a plant. Um, 450 million years of coevolution between plants and animals. Obviously, humans have only been around for two to four million years, depending where you draw the line and hominid evolution. But you know, plants and animals have been probably segregated for 400 plus million years. And so plants have been rooted in the ground for 400 million years, uh, and there have been herbivorous animals like dinosaurs <laughs> and their predecessors roaming the earth just eating plants. And so plants quickly, uh, the natural process of natural selection and evolution quickly uh, weeded out the plants that didn't develop some sort of uh, chemicals to dissuade unabated consumption of their leaves. And then there's, a, there's basically a warfare that's been going on between plants and animals for the last 400 plus million years. And it's like animals, you know, develop uh, probably phase one and phase two detoxification systems in the liver uh, in response to plant toxins, and then plants develop more toxins, or they develop pre-toxins, or they develop toxins that get turned into toxins once we metabolize them with phase two. And so it's just this, this sort of push and pull in terms of defining ecosystems. Well. Somewhere along the way, animals got really smart and realized we can just eat other animals and we can let the other animals do the detoxification work on the plants or animals became carnivorous. They said, hey, we can eat other animals and these herbivorous animals are adapted to eating exclusively plants, but our evolution is gonna go in a different direction because we're not gonna eat as many of these toxic plants. We're just gonna eat animals that have already detoxified them. So then the detoxification systems kind of shift. And people in response to that statement that I make about plants are trying to kill you, will say, well, yes, but humans are omnivores. And I say, yes, we are omnivores, thankfully, because it allows us to get out of a lot of sticky situations when our hunts are not successful. We're not carnivorous, we are omnivorous, but if you look at the zoological literature, um, one thing that was recently interesting for me to discover was that over 70% of omnivores either lean toward heavily toward plants or animals. So we must, we must say that as humans, we're probably either 
and uh, a carnivorous-leaning omnivore or an herbivorous-leaning omnivore. And I am certainly squarely on the side of the fence that says we are a carnivorous omnivore, meaning that we lean toward animal foods. And we see that in humans. You know, the Hadza, I think, are the best time machine that we've got, are the best version of the DeLorean that we have to go back 50 or 100,000 years. And so it's very clear we lean toward animals. And that is what I'm thinking that like, and when you're eating plants, like don't eat the plants that are most successful at killing you. Why would you do that? And we can answer (laughs) the question because a lot of people are misled or a lot of people have reasons that they've been told, like this is why you should eat kale and broccoli and spinach. And we can talk about why much of that is, is really incorrect in my, in my opinion. But, um, you know, the, the takeaway is that plants are clearly trying to kill us and they always have been and their strategies haven't been completely successful, thankfully, but um, sometimes they are. And there are many documented incidences in, in recorded history over the last 100 or even 50 years of farming practices where certain grazing animals are limited yep. in a certain uh, paddock of land or the population is, is fenced off and there's a mass die-off because they can't graze on enough different species of plants. This happens to wild animals sometimes if they're penned in. Like if you look at the way that wild animals eat plants, they eat a little bit of one plant and a little bit of another plant and a little bit of another plant because they know that this plant has this one alkaloid and this plant has another alkaloid and this plant has another alkaloid. And so I have to eat small amounts of all these plants or I'm going to overload my detoxification systems and get nauseous or die. And this has happened. So animals get this, but as humans, we don't really get it. And I fell for the lie too. I mean, I was a raw vegan for seven months and was putting insane amounts of raw kale into my body. And, you know, thankfully I didn't end up like the animals, but I had horrible gas and bloating and it was just, it was a nightmare for me. I lost so much weight. I was probably 35 pounds of muscle lighter than I am today. Uh, My friends would look at me and say, you're too skinny. And I had this sort of dogmatic religiosity, you know, just brewing within me. And I thought, well, I'm I'm good. This is how humans are supposed to look. And I look back at photos and it's, it's freaking scary. Uh, so anyway, um, I've, you know, I've been there. I've been there as well. Yeah. Animals <laughs> get it. You know, animals are smart, and I think yes, our ancestors are. were smart. And now we've been sort of fed this. We've lost this perspective that like plants exist on a toxicity spectrum, and a lot of people do way better when they focus on the most nutritious foods and they eliminate many or all of the most toxic plant foods. Yeah, I'm with you. I studied a lot of animal behaviorism and zoology in undergrad. And the thing that people don't understand is that we're predators just based on where our eyes are positioned on our face. I mean, we look straight ahead. We actually have a relationship with canines because of that. They also, they're one of the only predators that also have whites around their eyes. And so we can communicate with them non-verbally to hunt. That's how we progress past Neanderthal, right? We had the animals would run down the prey and wear it out, and then we would come in and kill it and eat it. So, I mean, that's the relationship that we've had with canines for forever, right? So it's, it's, I know people want to argue that point and put morals around it, which I get. I was a vegetarian for a decade and I was so sick. I was so sick. And it started me on the road to autoimmune conditions and all kinds of issues. That's what got my gut all turned inside out. And that's what took me through all of the training that I've done and all of the, you know, the search for answers was through that process because I was like, how, how did I end up at 20 something just completely wrecked? This episode of The Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. We can all use a bit more resilience right now, so I bottled it. Resilience is an optimal adrenal support to promote energy and stamina. 
Resilience features a comprehensive blend of nutrients and botanical extracts targeted to support the body's responses to stress. It's designed to promote adrenal physiological functions by supporting the adaptogenic response to promote optimal energy production, stamina, and the management of everyday stressors. Adrenal glandular tissue sourced from Argentinian bovine to safeguard purity rounds out the ingredient profile. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Resilience by using the code RESILIENCE10 over inside my store at store.drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code RESILIENCE10 for 10% off. Let's talk a minute about trying to extract nutrients out of plants versus trying to extract nutrients out of meat or animal product. Yeah, I mean, you can look at a variety of nutrients, and the story is the same over and over. Um, in the book, I talk about heme iron versus non-heme iron as a, as a sort of a, a paradigm, and it's, it's clear that, that iron is much more absorbable, so the element of iron, which is an atom, is much more absorbable when it's complex than a porphyrin ring, which is at the center of our hemoglobin molecule, but that is what heme iron is. It is iron within a porphyrin ring. And, I mean, you're so right. Like, there's so much evolutionary biology that teaches us that humans are animal eaters. And we have unique transporters in our gut to absorb heme iron, which is only found in animals. And, you know, let's, let's be clear. Our predecessors were chimps and bonobos who were not, you know, carnivorous, who were not even really that omnivorous. They're mostly herbivorous. They do eat some animals, so I guess you should call them omnivorous, but I think chimps and bonobos were uh, plant-leaning omnivores, and we are animal-leaning omnivores, and over time we acquired clear delineation uh, in evolutionary advantages, like specific heme iron transporters in the gut. So it's, it's unquestionable. So people who have anemia, they're saying, well, I'm going to take parsley, and I think, well, good luck curing your anemia <laughs> with parsley. Oh. Um, maybe you should just eat some spleen which has the most heme iron of anything. Uh, and you know, meat is great, obviously liver is good, but spleen is the absolute freaking superhero. So like, that's a great example. And you can look at the bioavailability of protein as well, just sheer amino acid availability. And this is one of the, the so often repeated um, and incorrect you know, ideologies from, from vegans. It's just a troop is that, that, that there's, enough, there's plenty of protein in plants and that plants have just as much protein as animals and that a cup of lentils, which no one could ever eat because it's so much freaking food and will give you so much gas and so much fiber, has as much, you know, a cup of lentils has as much fiber as three or four ounces of meat. And you're like, that's ridiculous because it's way easier to eat a pound and a half of meat than it is to eat a cup of lentils. Which, so, and then you have to look at the actual bioavailability of that protein. And the best metric we have of that is called the DIAS, the Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. And this is a very good metric that has been used. And plant protein is like half as bioavailable as animal protein. So if you're trying to get your protein and your amino acids from tofu, you're gonna to have to eat twice as much. And you can do it. I mean, you can, you can use a synthetic hemp protein supplement or a synthetic pea protein supplement, but you're not going to get things like anserine or taurine or carnitine or choline, all of the other nutrients that come along with these amino acids in animal foods. And you're going to be getting a highly synthetic product, which often has large levels of heavy metal contamination. And if we want to talk about ethics, 
Talk about the amount of land and water and just the amount of energy that went into making your super synthetic, highly concentrated pea protein, which is not evolutionarily consistent at all. You're basically completely swimming upstream from the natural order of things by trying to get enough protein with pea protein or hemp protein. You can do it. I mean, vegan bodybuilders exist. I think the majority of them are taking steroids and that doesn't hurt their physique, but you can get a moderate amount of protein with plant foods. Try getting a moderate amount of bioavailable protein without eating synthetic plant foods. That's impossible. And if you look at people who try doing that, you can look at any of the leading physicians in the vegan movement, um, and they're, they're all basically sarcopenic. They're incredibly yep. skinny. They have no muscle mass, and it's, it's, it's quite scary. And a lot of them uh, will hide the fact frequently that they often experience you know, uh, pathological fractures, and they have bad bone density, and it's just it's like something doesn't add up here. But... So there, there is the ability to do it, but it's, like, it's just animal foods are so much easier. Good luck getting it unless you're having a highly processed plant food. Yes. And then, like I said, there's all the other things that are accompanying that that are critical for optimal human health. So it's, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That brings me to something I wanted to ask you about, which is strength training, because I'm a huge fan of strength training. And I honestly base... <laughs> I base what I listen to on common sense and I move I lean towards those who look vibrant and healthy. If somebody looks vibrant and healthy, I'm interested in what they have to say. If somebody looks honestly, I have heard as a naturopathic doctor, veganism is very popular. I've heard all about it and I've seen many of the the big docs speak on it and you're right, they look sarcopenic. And for the audience who doesn't know what that means, that means basically muscle wasting, right? You're you're wasting away, you're you're living off your own muscle. My patients that I ran panels on when they were vegan, their panels were atrocious, always atrocious. I would sit down and have to have this conversation with them to talk to them about all the different variables that were off and all of the depletion I was seeing in their labs. And they would often get angry and it, it didn't go well. So I just actually made a, my background was that I did regenerative injection therapy. So that's what I specialized in. And you can't, in my opinion, you cannot heal the joints well of a vegan or, or staunch vegetarian easily. Uh, it's difficult and there usually has to be some kind of compromise of collagen or something, some kind of ingested collagen because I, I cannot help generate collagen without ingesting collagen. <laughs> you need glycine, right? You <laughs> Your poor cartilage. These poor, these poor people were so young, bone on bone, so much pain, so much ligamentous laxity, so um, the integrity of their tissues, right? I put my hands on all my patients and their tissue integrity was always just they were squishy. I don't know how else to say it. They just did not have good density. And so you can tell a lot about somebody's diet just by putting your hands on them. And vegetarians, I mean, you can, t I'm a chiropractor too. You can twist them up all day to try to adjust them and nothing will cavitate because it's like Gumby. It's, it's incredible. And it's no, I'm not, no disrespect against vegans and vegetarians. This is just literally what I saw clinically in a very busy practice over a decade's time. So, you know, it, it's a compelling argument. I do think though that, um, the the muscle mass thing that's it right like when you get at, and I so one of the reasons I want to talk to you I am a notorious under eater and I ha, I'm a hard gainer because of it and I have a hard time like actually ingesting enough protein it kind of makes me want to gag sometimes I don't always do well with like fat and cartilage and the things that I should be ingesting and so I and I but I lift a lot so I'm a hard gainer and I tend to injure my joints because of it but when people get adequate protein in their diet from animal source, they don't even have to work out as often. It's incredible to look at. And one of the 
delineating factors in my practice in the regenerative medicine world was the fact that if people had good muscle mass, they healed incredibly well. And they generally, even if they were eating a bunch of crap in addition to, they generally were getting a lot of protein, animal-based protein. And so whatever I would do to their joint would heal right up. Conversely, take a vegetarian and we would go in circles, right? So anyway, um, what do you say to those of us who are having a hard time getting adequate protein in. And you see a lot of people lean towards protein powders and bars and things like that. What's your, what's your take on that? Super important point. And I want to play off a couple of things you said. So I was out surfing yesterday morning. I, I surf here in Costa Rica every day. And I was walking back on the beach and I saw one of my friends and he said, man, you're in great shape. And people can see my Instagram. And he said, what do you do? You lift weights every day? And I said, no, I don't lift weights at all. And you're, you're making me think, I should do an Instagram post. I want to do an Instagram post. There's probably some good genetics on my side, but I don't lift weights. I don't lift weights. I surf, but I don't lift weights. And I have um, pretty good musculature. Sometimes I think it's too much for surfing. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't want to lift weights. I don't want to get any bigger. I just want this muscle to do what I do. And I want to be able to move, whether I want to do martial arts, I want to stay limber. But I don't lift weights, and I maintain a lot of muscle on my frame, such so much so that many people comment on it. I had another guy in the water say, what do you do to work out? And I said, I eat a lot of meat. And he said, eating a lot of meat doesn't get you like that. I said, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> it probably does. Like, and it may have something to do with mobility work. You know, maybe I do, I do a, maybe 15 minutes of mobility work in the morning before I surf. That's it. Like, that is literally what I do every day. I don't lift weights. I don't throw a kettlebell around more than three times a month. I, I just don't, I don't bench. I don't do pull-ups that often. I do occasionally on my stairs in my house. I don't squat. I don't deadlift. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, occasionally when I'm home and I can't surf, when I'm in Austin, I will do a front squat or two, but it's, it's, it's nothing massive. And so your point is really well taken. That I think when humans are getting adequate protein, your body will respond with more muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I told this guy. I was like, you need to eat two pounds of meat per day. And he was like, wow, that's a lot of meat. And I thought, that's, that's an easy amount of meat for me. I could eat almost two pounds in a meal if I wanted to. And so I think that the thing for people to realize at the start is that adequate protein for humans, in my opinion, is one gram per pound of body weight as a minimum. Yeah. And so I'm 170 pounds. That's, think about 100 grams of meat. Excuse me, one pound of meat is 100 grams of protein. So... Because when you do the calculations, obviously one pound of meat is 454 grams, but a lot of that's water. So of that 454 grams of meat, it's 100 grams of protein. So I need to eat almost two pounds of meat to get my minimum, and I eat probably more than two pounds of meat per day in addition to organs, desiccated organs, and some fruit. So if people are listening and they're like you and they're having trouble getting enough protein, then we can think about it. But that's the goal for you. So say you weigh 110 pounds you would want to get 110 grams of protein, which is more than a pound of meat. It's like a pound and a quarter of animal protein per day. Now you can throw in a few eggs, six grams of protein per egg white, but that's not really going to get you to 110. You're going to need to eat a pound of meat a day, at least, yeah. to get enough. Now, when we were talking before, you said, I'm a, you know, I'm a filet mignon girl. And I was like, okay, great. And I'll tell you that a lot of people, if they eat meat and it's too lean, get sick of it. So you need to have the magic amount of fat in your meat. And whether that is you know, taking tallow and melting tallow over your meat or ghee, if you tolerate dairy, melt some ghee over your meat and watch, you'll probably be able to eat more. Now, mm. it's tricky depending on the individual. And I, I hear you because I encounter a lot of women doing this work that say, 
I don't want to eat the gristle. I don't want to eat the fat. Like they, they don't want to eat a ribeye because it's too much fat in the ribeye. Give me the fat. That's great. It's great for me. I like hanging out with them because I get extra fat and I get extra, <laughs> I get extra collagen because I'll eat the, the tendon on the back of the New York stick. I love the chewy bits of animals, but that's just who I am. I think it's just maybe culturally or for whatever reason, guys, it's easier in general for that kind of behavior. But it's okay if you don't want to eat the chewy bits. That's the collagen. It's good for you, but you know you're going to have to get more of a collagen source in your diet, whether that's a bone broth that you make in a pressure cooker or some high-quality collagen source uh, in a supplement or something. You're going to need to do that. But the fat is the key thing. So in addition to 110 grams of protein from animal meat, which is at least a pound of meat for you, you're going to need to get a good amount of animal fat. And if you don't like eating the fat on the meat and you don't like eating fatty meat, think about eating fatty hamburger maybe. I really think fatty hamburger is a great hack for people. And there's, hamburger is very affordable. So you can get grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised hamburger from Belcampo there in California or White Oak, six, eight dollars a pound, maybe nine dollars a pound max. So it's very affordable. And you wanna get the 15 or 20% fat so mm -hmm. that there's extra tallow, there's extra fat. And when you cook it and then you pour that back over the burger and you get, you don't have to eat all the fat, but the burger is gonna be much more palatable when it has some fat. That's what makes a good burger. A juicy burger is a burger with like 15% fat in it. If you go to the store and you get the leanest ground beef, I think a lot of women especially are fearful. They think, I don't want fat in my meat, it's gonna make me fat. And in fact, it's just gonna make you fertile and healthy and vibrant, but yeah. you know, but I've tried three to 5% ground beef when my friends have bought it and I'm like, this tastes like shit. You yeah, can't I agree. eat it. You cannot eat, because the body, really doesn't really doesn't want protein without fat. You want the fattiest meat. And when you're with the Hadza, and you can tell, like the most desirable cuts of meat are the fatty cuts of meat. We like fat on our meat because it's good for us. Now you just need to find a way to get the fat on your meat in a way that doesn't make you sort of squeamish. If you like filet mignon, that's great. There's almost no fat on that cut. It's super right. tender, but you're gonna need to get fat. If you do dairy, you can do ghee, melt it over the top. If you don't do dairy, many people don't do any dairy, do tallow, melt it over the top get some suet, melt the suet, do a liquid fat on top of your steak or something, is gonna be- I like that thing. idea. But you need to get animal fat, and animal fat is uniquely beneficial too. So this is a really interesting point to consider. I feel like a lot of women, when they do this diet, will end up eating lean meat and avocado, which is great, but avocado is not animal fat. And people always ask me, what about, because I'm really, really interested in the way that seed oils, which is a whole other rabbit hole that we can go down if you want, are problematic for human physiology. So I say, don't eat seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, etc. They say, what about olive oil? What about avocado? What about coconut? And my answer is always the same. It's not animal fat. You want animal fat. Why would you eat coconut oil when you can eat tallow? Tallow mm -hmm. is prized. Animal fat is prized. And tallow is beef fat. And I like beef fat because it's low linoleic acid. I'm not as much of a fan of lard because it's often much higher linoleic acid. The same with duck fat, the same with chicken fat, because all these are monogastric species that are fed grains and so they have artificially elevated levels of linoleic acid in their fat. So beef fat, ruminant fat, lamb fat, bison fat, cow fat, that's what you really want. Um, that's the good stuff. And if you don't want it on the steak, put it in a hamburger or just use the tallow over your food. But animal fat is uniquely beneficial because there are compounds in animal fat that we never think of as nutrients. We just think of fat, right? We think right. of so many of these foods as macronutrients, but they have micronutrients. And fat is probably one of the most fascinating ones for me. There's an 18 carbon saturated fatty acid called stearic acid, which is hugely beneficial for humans. And they, there are plant sources of stearic acid in like cacao butter, but the best source is clearly animal suet because you're getting all the other benefits of animal fat. 
fat-soluble vitamins, and also your odd-chain fatty acids. But stearic acid is incredible. There's a really great paper in Nature that I've talked about where they took people and they starved them of stearic acid for a few days. So they made them, I think they put them on the vegetarian diet for a few days, like zero stearic acid. And you can see there are changes in their mitochondria. Stearic wow. acid is a mitochondrial signal. Their mitochondria separate and they stop burning fat. So you can see acyl carnitines in the blood as a marker of fatty acid beta oxidation. And they stop doing that when you starve them of stearic acid. Then they give them a shake with stearic acid or they give them stearic acid. And what happens? The mitochondria fuse and they turn on. And you can see it visually in the nature paper. And so stearic acid in animal fat will turn on mitochondrial fat burning in humans. How do you get it? You get it from tallow. You get it from beef fat, right? The most highly concentrated form of stearic acid is the suet, the kidney fat around, uh, you know, in the back of the animal. It's like a very waxy fat. It's in regular fat, which is like the subcutaneous fat, but it's about twice as prevalent in the kidney fat of animals. So that's why at Hardened Soil, we've got one supplement you may have seen called Firestarter. That's what we make Firestarter out of, that like special high stearic acid kidney fat if people can't get it. If you can't get suet, that's what we put into the fire starter because we want people to get stearic acid. We want people to get this good quality, really almost like a hormonally active fat. And then there's things like odd chain fatty acids, pentadecanoic acid, heptadecanoic acid. Nobody talks about these. Uniquely found in animal fat, very beneficial for humans. Really the proof is in the pudding. Uh, tallow is magic. I challenge any of the men or women listening to this to include a tablespoon or more of tallow in your diet or day, and you will see massive improvements in your health just from eating animal fat that you've been told is horrible for you for the last 70 years. It's a game changer, just animal fat. So getting that fat with the protein will help. Getting it in a form that's more palatable is always doable, just find what works for you, and then you know figure out where you want those carbohydrates to be. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I love it. No, it's a great idea. And I, you know, I do very well with um, ground beef in general, or ground anything in general. It just digests easier for me. So especially if I do some kind of pressure cooker to it and, and denature it a little bit more. Um, but I like that idea of adding fats in. You know, I was... So I think we're similar in age, close. Um, I'm 47, you're 46? 44. 44, okay. Um, I saw something on your Instagram. I was like, oh, he's in his 40s. I remember watching, I was old enough to remember watching everybody transition to PAM and to hydrogenated yes. oils. I, I remember it clearly. And I remember looking at my entire family who was once fit and lean, and I watched every single member of my family balloon up during that transition, I didn't know what was happening. So I freaked out and went vegetarian. Like that was my, I was like, something is going wrong. And I was watching it in front of my eyeballs. I remember the food industry markedly changing things and, but still being young enough and not really, you know, wise enough to have a clue what was happening. I was a teenager, but I remember distinctly watching human beings shift and turn into much more obese creatures in general. Like I just watched the whole thing shift and I always blamed it on all these damn fake fats and all of these seed oils. And I didn't know why until I got older and studied it. But that, yeah, I mean, we used to cook in bacon fat. Everything was cooked in bacon fat. And then suddenly everything was like, I can't believe it's not butter and Pam and all this other horrific, ugh. And then all the health issues have started. I mean, you know, I, I did a podcast on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health with Chris Kenobi, and we trace the history uh, of human health. Even in the last oh, wow. 120 years, it's very clear. You know, seed oils were not a thing until 18-something when they first made, uh, like, machine lubricants, and then 1911 was Crisco, but there was a seed oil before that in, like, the 1800s. 
And if you look at it, you know, in 1905, everyone ate all animal fat. There was no such thing as, like, avocado oil. There was no such thing as coconut oil in the United States. There was no such thing as really even much olive oil in the United States. Like, you're not going to get olive oil in 1905 unless you're an Italian, you know. You're mostly eating animal fat. And yeah. what was the incidence of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes? It was a heck of a lot lower than it is now. And we were eating all saturated fat. Like, I just mm-hmm. don't understand how people were able to perpetuate this narrative. I, I, I do understand. It was a, a media machine, like we're yes. seeing with so many other things today, propagated by, you know, uh, seed oil and, you know, factory food interests. Uh, you know, I think Crisco actually was a major funder of the American Heart Association in the early 1900s. Like, I, I'm pretty sure. Fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the truth. And there was so much collusion and... Um, you know, misinformation around all of these, all of these food components. And we were told like, this is the cleaner fat. This is what you want. And then LDL came around and we figured out cholesterol. And then Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1951 or something, I think. And, and then everybody thought, oh, we know that surely LDL causes atherosclerosis. And then the seed oil train got all the steam in the world because what happens when you eat seed oils? Your LDL goes down, Yep. but, it, but your heart attacks go up. Yep. But people couldn't see this, right? We're eating more seed oils now than ever before and rates of heart disease and diabetes are skyrocketing. And if you really dig into the minutia of the data, it looks really, really bad. There's a really fascinating paper that everyone loves to ignore who promotes seed oils or likes to exonerate them, which seems in vogue today, exonerating seed oils. I don't understand why people want to do this. But you can give people, so I think they, they, they looked at two groups of people and they, gave, they took people who were eating like 30 grams of fat per day and they replaced 10 of those grams with either saturated fat or, or seed oils, or polyunsaturated seed oils, right? Or maybe 20 grams. So they, they, they changed the amount of saturated fat versus polyunsaturated seed oils in someone's diet. And what they found was when they decreased saturated fat and increased seed oils, LDL went down. But oxidized LDL went up and LP little a went up. So that's like, how, why are we even talking about this anymore? It, it, because this LDL, like so many other things, this paradigm has become so deeply ingrained in our collective consciousness as medical providers that everyone knows that LDL causes heart disease. So anything that raises LDL is bad and anything that lowers LDL is, is okay. good, which is absolute horseshit because there's no appreciation for context and the context is metabolic health. And I've talked about this time and time again. I talked about it in my book and I've talked about it on many other podcasts that you can look at the Framingham data cohort and it's this epidemiology, but you can stratify LDL rise and heart disease. And if you do that relationship, you'll see a line that goes up to the right. You'll see a relationship. You'll see the higher the LDL, the higher the incidence of heart disease. But if you break that down into quartiles and you further stratify it by a third variable, and that third variable is HDL, an indicator of insulin resistance, AKA metabolic dysfunction, a completely different relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease emerges, which is that if your HDL is low, 25 or 45, then there is a relationship between LDL and cardiovascular disease. If your LDL is high, 65 or 85, if your HDL, excuse me, is high, 65 or 85, there's essentially no relationship between rising LDL and heart disease. And everyone misses this fact that it's not LDL, it's the context. Because what we know is that a lot of humans, it's probably a European genotype or something, and I'm trying to find a group of hunter-gatherers that show this. A lot of Europeans, for whatever reason, when we eat more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat, our LDL goes up. It just does. 
And that probably has to do with this, uh, this homeoviscous model of the membranes that your membrane is trying to keep a certain level of fluidity or something in our genetics, or the saturated fat is activating certain genetics, and your LDL is going up. But what, what happens all the time? Your triglycerides go down, your HDL goes up, your fasting insulin goes down, and you get healthier, right? You lose weight, you feel better, your hormones go up, you get more fertile, you have a higher libido, and your LDL goes up, so you go to your doctor and they say you're going on a statin. And you go, what are you talking about? I just told you I lost weight, I feel better, I'm sleeping better, I have more libido, and I'm clearly more metabolically healthy because my fasting insulin is lower, and you're telling me I need to go on a statin? I don't understand how people can't, can't really grasp the fact the paradigm is completely broken. But because seed oils lower LDL, it gained all the steam in the 1950s, and now we're still told to avoid saturated fat because your LDL is going to go up. And for a lot of people, your LDL will go up, and you should celebrate that because in addition to moving cholesterol backbones and triglycerides around your body, it's also an immune particle. Right. The, the LDL participates in the immune system, and so you have it, it totally is involved in quorum sensing with bacteria. It can... Uh, you know, deactivate bacterial communication mechanisms. So we're so afraid of this lipo lipoprotein when it's actually a valuable part of the human body. The whole thing is so backwards to me. And it's all kind of, it, everything hinges on LDL in my opinion. If we can change that, then people will begin to realize the whole house of cards will fall. And people will realize, oh, seed oils are horrible for humans. And as you're describing, observationally and interventionally, we can see these are evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid in our body, and they completely mess us up. It's a really, really bad thing for us. So this is all from a rabbit hole around eat animal fat <laughs> before you eat any other fat. Obviously, olive oil and avocado oil are better than seed oils because they have less linoleic acid, but they still have much more linoleic acid than tallow. And they don't have stearic acid. They don't have pentadecanoic acid. They don't have heptadoic acid. They don't have fat-soluble vitamins like you're going to find in animals. So anyway. Yeah, which is huge. No, that's huge. The fat-soluble vitamins in the animal fat is huge. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down. There's a book called Prescribing by Numbers. I can't remember the author's name. You should read it. I will find it for you. I'll, I'll list it in the show notes. Um, he basically talks about how in the 70s and 80s, well, even earlier, the push to get statin drugs on market and convincing all of the medical doctors by you know sending out marketing materials. And that's the villainization of... That's where it all came from. And they had to keep pushing the narrative. So, and we had a large, we had a lot, we had a large movement, I think, in the uh, food pyramid that you and I grew up on that was determined by an organization that was heavily vegetarian. So, I mean, there's just a lot of agenda behind a lot of this. You've got to wonder, you know, I mean, pharmaceutical companies have made billions, if not trillions, on statins at this point. And, um, They've probably prevented some heart attacks that were going to happen anyway, uh, that, that eventually happened anyway. And just like so many of the other things we're faced with today, I think that, you know, the medications are generally a Band-Aid. And that's my problem with mainstream Western medicine and why I've kind of taken this sharp left turn and, and do what I do. And I think why you do what you do as well, which is, hey, like, you can give someone a medication. It's going to lower their LDL. It might, if they've had a heart attack, the data suggests it might lower their risk of having right. another heart attack. But it's not going to solve any of the problems. It's not going to solve the underlying metabolic health issue, which is driving that. And so you're missing this opportunity. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, they're missing the boat completely. I mean, these people are walking around with hormonal disruptions, insulin resistance, carb-heavy diets, lack of muscle, and they're wondering why their lipids are off. But everybody wants to blame the saturated fat. And I'm like, 
Mm. <laughs> and, people, and people only want to look at LDL. They, they won't look at triglycerides. They won't look at a triad. They won't look at HDL, triglycerides. They won't look at HSCRP. They won't look at fasting insulin. Oh, yeah. People always send me their lipids. And I say, well, did your doctor get a fasting insulin? No. Why would he? I'm not diabetic. They, yeah. they don't understand. No, they don't. They don't. And I think, too, on that note, it's interesting because I've even had conversations with MDs who were moving into functional medicine and they would show me their labs. And I immediately went to the HDL and to some of the other factors and they were just like, what does that have to do with anything? I'm like, it's the whole picture. It's the whole, you got to put the whole picture together. This is like a choose your own detective novel. This is why I don't actually, when people on Instagram ask me what labs they should have run, I'm like, that's one piece of it, but you actually have to find someone who can interpret it intelligently, right? That's the, that's the bigger issue. So handing people a list of labs to go run is kind of a moot point when they don't actually have somebody who's skilled to analyze them. Because you know if they get a lipid panel, which they should get, they're going to take it to their doctor and all they're going to focus on is the LDL. Yep. Yeah, they're not even cool. going to look at the fasting insulin. And it's like, in my strong opinion, I don't care what your LDL is if your fasting insulin is less than five. I just don't care. Yeah. And, and presumably, you know, your triglycerides are low and your HDL is low, high. And so like, why are we even talking about this? And the same thing has been done. LDL and cardiovascular risk has been stratified by fasting insulin as well. And it's the same relationship. So yeah. it's a yeah. fascinating rabbit hole. It is. It's a, it's a conversation for sure. Well, this has been so awesome. I want to hear more about your supplements really quickly and let the audience know where they can find you because you've got a lot going on and it's all exciting. So we talked a little bit about organs earlier, and I want to make sure that everybody understands the importance of organs. We really emphasize the importance of meat, but there's so many unique things, peptides, growth factors, other nutrients that are hard to get in meat that are found in organs. For instance, riboflavin. It's really hard to get riboflavin unless you're eating liver and heart. And for people with MTHFR polymorphisms, more riboflavin is basically fixes it. It's amazing. So if you have 677T, C to T, or 1298, whatever you have, like if you get more than the RDA of riboflavin, two to three milligrams a day, there's an allosteric, allosteric regulation of the MTHFR enzyme, the conversion of 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate to 5-methylfolate proceeds as normal if you get enough riboflavin, but you're not gonna get enough riboflavin unless you eat liver and heart. And heart is a great source of coenzyme Q10, and liver is a great source of choline, and K2, and a million other things. And then all the organs, we talked about spleen today for you know, heme iron and you know, healing of iron deficiency anemia. Spleen is a great organ. And then you know, testicle is an amazing organ for improving male sexual health. And then ovaries and uterus are amazing for female sexual health. And you're, nobody's gonna go to the store and buy these foods. Like people might eat liver, but I just, I thought about my mom and my sister and my dad, and I was like, they're never gonna eat organs. So I built a company called Heart and Soil. We're at heartandsoil.co. The supplements are behind me if you're watching the video. And we make desiccated organs from grass-fed, grass-finished cattle in New Zealand that are regeneratively raised, which basically means we take organs, we put them in a freeze dryer, we desiccate them at 39 degrees to preserve as many of the nutrients as possible, we put them in a capsule. And now my mom and my sister will take it, and I'm super excited about it. And it's just great because if people are eating organs, fantastic. You don't need our supplements. But if you are not eating organs and you really want to kick ass in your life, they are going to be life-changing for so many people because it's easy. Like, my sister can open the tablets over my niece and nephew's food and they won't even taste it, right? They can get liver, a little bit of heart, a little bit of liver, a little bit of pancreas or spleen or kidney or 
you know, brain or any of these other organs we put in these. So we just came out with whole package, which is testicle and blood and liver for men, and her package, oh, nice. like I said, which is uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, uh, kidneys, and liver. And those are my two favorite ones right now. And they're just, it's so cool to see what happens when men and women, women eat the respective sex organs. It's really, really exciting to see. So, and it's not even like, you know, there's definitely zinc in testicles, which helps with testosterone production, but it's all of these other things that we really don't understand at a nutritional level yet. These peptides, these precursors, things like folostatin or endothelin or endothelial growth factor or, you know, beta FGF, any of these things that are present in organs, they're like these magical compounds. We're starting to talk about peptides, but I think what people don't realize is peptides are in meat and they're in organs. We have a supplement called gut and digestion, which is stomach and intestine for people who have GI issues. And in the stomach, there is BPC-157. This is probably the most commonly talked about peptide. Yeah. People inject it and take it. Well, it occurs naturally in your stomach. And if you eat the stomach of an animal, like tripe, you're gonna get BPC-157. But if you don't wanna eat tripe, then you can just take desiccated organ supplements. So I just, the hope is that it makes it easier and more accessible for people to really get these unique nutrients in what we do. So you can check us out, heartandsoil.co. Awesome. We'll make sure those are in the show notes, that link there. That's great. And I do, I take two of your products. I've got the beef organs and the um, bone and liver. So, which you were kind enough to send to me to try out. We'll, and get, I love the, them. we'll get you the her package. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's exciting. Uh, and your book, they can get that anywhere. You can get it anywhere. It's called The Carnivore Code. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you want. And yeah, the book talks about all these things in much more detail. And I'm yeah. at CarnivoreMD on all the socials. Yeah, follow him on Instagram where we, you and I are having a fun time navigating the censorship. <laughs> I think that I, I'm trying. I think we, we talked about it a little bit. And people can also check me out on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health, if they want to hear some of the conversations I have. But yeah, the censorship on social media is tough right now. But thankfully, platforms like this, uh, podcasts are much more difficult to censor. Newsletters are much more difficult to censor. And I think that people are really going to realize that, hey, if I want... If I really want controversial content about COVID or anything else, I'm going to have to go elsewhere because fine, you know, like Instagram says you can't talk about COVID. Fine. I won't talk about COVID, but you better believe I'm going to talk about it in my newsletter. So. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been incredible. A great hour of information. And I think people are going to have to go back and take notes because you're, you are a, uh, a master of the biochem, but thank you so much for being here, sir. And I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. <laughs>